Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm John Schwartz, a writer at The Intercept, filling in for Ryan Grimm on this week's episode of Deconstructed. Imagine if you and millions of Americans successfully fought to stop a multinational corporation from mining copper in your state and destroying the rivers and environment for everyone. And you won. You get a law passed forbidding the company from opening the mine. But then the Supreme Court steps in and says, nope, this law is unconstitutional, we're striking it down, the mine can open, and they can pollute your state. Now, that might be easy to imagine, given our own corporate-owned and operated Supreme Court is busy making decisions like this all the time. But the point is, that's not just here. It's essentially how life is in most countries on Earth, except it's even worse. Over decades, corporations have quietly created supreme corporate courts that operate on an international level that can and do overrule mere people. Claire Provost and Matt Kennard have written an amazing new book about why and how this happened. Because it didn't just happen, it was all planned. The book is called Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. And let me tell you, if you are angry at how the world seems unfair, if you haven't read this, you are not angry enough. Provost is co-founder and co-director of the new nonprofit Institute for Journalism and Social Change, Kennard is co-founder and chief investigator at Declassified UK, a news outlet investigating British foreign policy. Claire and Matt, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The title of your book is Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy, which is pretty straightforward. But tell us about what this title means exactly and, and what are the specifics about what corporations want to get with their power. So when we think about democracy, we think about ourselves having some kind of say and role in the decision making about our futures. And what the book charts, like in, in very broad terms, is how there was a very structured and strategic and infrastructural attempt to overthrow this, in a sense, from the beginning, from the beginning in, 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 in the sense that there was a moment in the 20th century when things could have really, really shifted towards people power at the time of like dramatic decolonization, independence movements, as well as labor movements, movements for freedom all around the world. And there was a really strategic attempt to not only confront those movements at that moment, but also to overrule them for perpetuity, like in perpetuity forever. And, and so the book looks at, at ways in which international systems and strategies have been set up o- over the last 75 plus years to make that promise of democracy uh, an impossibility. There's a lot of work that's been done and a lot of literature that's been produced over the years about how corporations have captured the political systems domestically in places like the United States and in Britain and other places. And it's clear every day when you look at uh, the societies we live in that corporations have penetrated more and more 
areas. And that's quite a, a, a well-analyzed and covered topic, I think. But what our book focuses on is how this is the international system that was constructed uh, to enshrine corporate power after the end of the Second World War. This is an important time because at, at a rapid clip, particularly in the 50s and 60s, huge amounts of countries were becoming independent. People who had been literally fighting the imperial powers on the ground were becoming prime ministers and presidents, nationalising resources, expropriating assets. And the traditional owners of the world, the people that had owned the world for hundreds of years, the Western imperial powers, were freaking out. Uh, and they thought, what are we going to do in the face of this kind of liberation movements around the world that were that were making the ground shift beneath their feet? So they quite consciously came up, and this sounds like tinfoil hat stuff, but you can it's all there in black and white when you go to the World Bank archives and other places, which we did. They quite consciously thought, we need to construct an international system that works above the heads of national governments and enshrines foreign investors' rights and enshrines multinational corporations' rights. And they worked very quickly to start constructing that. I mean, the major moment in this system was the Bretton Woods meetings in 1944 in New Hampshire, when the World Bank, or what became the World Bank, and the IMF were created. And then four years later, the, um, the German Agreement on Trade and Tariffs was created, which later became the WTO. Now, these three institutions... Uh, were kind of the uh, most important bodies which which controlled the global economy afterwards and, and controlled w how countries would develop. Um, and they were all about, from the start, enshrining corporate power and allowing and easing the movement of corporations into new markets. And in our book, we kind of went specifically to look at some of the systems that were put in place. Now, the first one we looked at was what's called investor state dispute settlement. ISDS. And for me, this is kind of the emblematic system of this whole infrastructure because it was created in 1966 as part of the World Bank. And 1966 is not a coincidental date. It was in the early 60s, huge amounts of countries in Africa, particularly, were becoming independent. Um, and ICSID, uh, the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, was about was a system that would allow multinational corporations to sue states at supranational venues when they enacted policies they didn't like. So if you nationalise a resource or you, uh, there's cases where if you raise a minimum wage, any, anything that a corporation doesn't like, this gives them the right to sue the states. The, the book is in four parts and we start with ISDS, but there were many, many other systems which were created and are enshrined in, in uh, free trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties and all this, this web of agreements that crisscross the world. Um, and what it really does is, is a, it, the reason we call it a silent coup was this, barely anyone knows about this stuff. This is an international system that was consciously set up to put to bed the democratic movements which had, which had arisen after the Second World War. And no, barely anyone knows about it. In a sort of broad sense, this book describes the construction of an international system that enshrines corporate power and works above the heads of national governments. And it has, in 2023, we call it a silent coup. I believe that this, the coup is complete now. Effectively, it's extremely difficult to go up against this system because it has such overwhelming power. The only place that there's been real resistance to it, successful resistance, particularly in recent history, has been Latin America. Funnily enough, there's three countries which tried to 
extricate themselves from the from ICSID in recent history, and that was Venezuela under Chavez, Bolivia under Evo Morales, and Ecuador under Rafael Correa. Um, and they did, but it's extremely hard to even extricate yourself from the system because a lot of these agreements have what are called sunset clauses, which means even if you pull out of the uh, of an agreement, it, it will only happen 10 years later. And then they're, obviously they're hoping in 10 years' time there won't be an, a liberation government that has the same predilection to get out and they can just stay in. So it's uh, it's a, it's what, you know, uh, when anti what was called anti-globalisation really exercised the left, there was... Everyone talked about what Thomas Friedman called the golden straitjacket. You know, they said that there's a straitjacket that the, the Bretton Woods institutions put on the economies of, of most of the world. He thought it was golden, but it's not golden. The point is, what, what it's about is nullifying democracy. Yes, I think it's great to bring up that uh, Thomas Friedman quote, the golden straitjacket, because as you say, the golden part turned out not to be real, but the straitjacket part absolutely is. The golden part is real if you're on the if you're on the winning side of this battle. It really is real. The golden side is is that of the straitjacket is that if you're a powerful economic elite and corporate or corporation and you want to protect and expand your power, you can do that in so many different ways. And if if you get to the point where you you come across extreme defiance, like extreme defiance, including from the Latin American countries that that Matt mentions, then you can go to these international systems and have your will um, implemented by those international systems. So for some, it is absolutely golden. For the majority, it is the opposite of that. But 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 it is a good system for 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 some people, and and that that's part of the problem. If it was a universally bad system for everybody, it would be easier to dismantle it. There are some extraordinarily powerful and wealthy individuals and companies that are benefiting extraordinarily from the status quo, which makes it hard to dismantle. Yes, yeah, and that of course is a very important point, and it fits in with the overall arc of history that you describe. I think. In America in particular, uh, probably in Europe as well, the fact that Europe and the U.S. colonize, like I think literally every square inch of planet Earth, uh, with the exception of, I, I believe, Japan and Ethiopia, that was a system where there were rewards for certain people in the colonized countries. And they would help the colonizing countries, like, like run the country that they were living in. And so there were big rewards for a small proportion of the population. And as you say, it, it wouldn't work if it was terrible for everybody. Like there is a small number of people for whom it was good. And uh, I wanted to ask you if you are familiar with this from the Obama White House website where they explain it very straightforwardly. I, I have rarely seen anybody talk about this or, or have never seen anybody talk about this. But uh, here's what the Obama White House said. Before we had investment rules, an ISDS, that's the Investor State Dispute Settlement System, uh, before we had that, unlawful behavior by countries that targeted foreign investors tended either to go unaddressed or escalate into conflict between countries. In fact, early in our history, the U.S. had to deploy gunboat diplomacy or military intervention to protect private American commercial interests. ISDS is a more peaceful, better way to resolve trade conflicts between countries. It's like as if he's reading from a script. That, that, that is the script. That is the script that was written in the 50s. And, it, and it's the script that was shopped around the world by 
elite Europeans, the head of the Deutsche Bank, and and other ch chairs and, and and board members of major European corporations. They shopped it around, didn't get success at the UN, didn't su get success at the OECD. Then they get success in, in Washington, D.C. at the World Bank, convincing the Americans to take up this script that unless you set up the system, you're going to have infinite like armed conflict that uh, rebellious people are going to rise up. They're going to demand things. There's going to be wars. There's going to be violence. So this is like a route to peace. It's a peace without democracy. That's like a really old sort of narrative. It 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 it, it comes from the foundation of the system. So it's it's super chilling to hear that in a more contemporary context, like from the Obama administration. That's not a new argument. That is like the foundational argument of 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 this system and, and it's a really terrifying one but i think that he's right in a way because as claire mentioned this was that is the script that was or that was the the way that this system was sold by its godfathers and its godfather particularly was a german banker called herman abs who made this speech in 1957 in san francisco to a group a group of industrialists from the us and around the world and he was making this exact same point so this was 1957, and he referenced three things. He referenced the coup in um, in Iran in 1953, when the CIA and MI6 overthrew the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, because it nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, what's now BP. Jacobo Arbenz, the democratically elected president of Guatemala, who had enacted quite a mild land reform program, but had stepped on the toes of the United Fruit Company, who had uh, chatted to their friends in the CIA and the CIA had organized to overthrow democracy in Guatemala. In 1956, President Nasser, again, a big bet noir of the era for the, for the Americans and the British, he nationalized the Suez Canal and was invaded by Israel, France and Britain. And he said exactly what the Obama administration said in 1957. He said, we don't want to have to do this stuff anymore. We don't have to go in with coups. We don't want to have to overthrow leaders, maybe even assassinate the ones that nationalize stuff. So we need a system that goes works above their heads. So it doesn't matter if you get a Mossadegh in. It doesn't matter if you get an Arbenz in. It doesn't matter if you get an Nasser in. They can't move. They've got the straitjacket on. And that's what the ISDS system was about. And that's kind of what is being, what the quote that you mentioned, John, from the Obama administration, that's kind of celebrating this fact. And it's also done silently. Barely anyone knows about this ISDS system. Barely anyone knows about the history of it. But I think part of the reason that this system particularly is so little known is that there's very, very weak justification for it. Because as you know, most of these systems that make capitalism run in the interest of the 1%, they all have very sophisticated ideologies bolted on top of them to justify them to the people within the system, but also to the general public. There's barely any justification for the ISDS system. So they just keep it secret, you know. It was quite interesting hearing the Obama administration give such a full-throated defense of it. It goes to the heart of um, the fact that what, what Naomi Klein talked about in the shock doctrine, that there's this theory that was built up, again, it's part of the whole ideology that freedom and capitalism, democracy and capitalism are, are intertwined when it's the opposite, you know, uh, that they have to work above the heads of democratic governments to make sure that it all runs smoothly and all in their interests, and that's the system that they erected. Yes, and I, I think one especially interesting comment from an especially interesting guy uh, about this and how we transformed from a system sort of formal colonialism into something that 
was invisible and worked in kind of the same ways is uh, Pope Francis, who in 2015 said, we see the rise of new forms of colonialism, which seriously prejudice the possibility of peace and justice. The new colonialism takes on different faces, and at times it appears as the anonymous influence of mammon, corporations, loan agencies, certain free trade treaties, and the imposition of measures of austerity, which always tighten the belt of workers and the poor. I mean, good, good, good for him saying that. I don't disagree with that. Uh, but it, it frustrates me also as a person who like lives in Italy. The Vatican State is like within our peninsula, and we are facing like an extreme case right now from a British company that has is challenging um, through this international investor state dispute settlement system is is challenging. Uh, popularly supported ban on offshore oil and gas uh, exploration and, and activity like very close to the shore and uh, uh, that that case that is still ongoing so far the tribunal in Washington has has sided with the company meaning that Italy will either have to continue to allow oil and gas exploration close to the shore or it will have to pay hundreds of millions of euros Italy has tried to appeal. The final hearing will be behind closed doors in the first quarter of 2024. I, I mean, this is an ex- it's an extreme example of what Matt mentioned before of how how like people don't know about this system and how it affects our lives and and decisions that are made around us. Um, this is the, this case facing Italy is it's not mainstream news in Italy. It's not something everybody knows about. It's it, it's not something that we're we're publicly all aware of and talking about the fact that a corporation can challenge um, a democratically Im- introduced following popular mobilizations for like a decade, you know, ban on 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 oil and gas exploration near the shore. So so it's great that he says that, but it's not very specific. And I think in, until people get specific on these things. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean enough, perhaps. Uh, there, in addition to Italy, there are a number of other countries facing extraordinary cases that if, if you are, as Pope Francis sounds to be concerned about the balance between multinational corporate power and, and people power, like you would want, we, we need support for, for also other communities and, and governments that are fighting extraordinary cases, including Honduras. Honduras is a case that it's it's ongoing right now, and I want to mention it because it's it's not in our book because it's a more recent case. But that that case is is from an American company that wanted to build a very dystopian special economic zone slash private city in Honduras, and the the Honduran government is in the process of changing the laws so that you can no longer build such dystopian cities and dystopian private special economic zones. And so the company has taken the government to the same institution at the World Bank, ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. And and, and that case is worth a third of the country's budget, national budget. So, So, like, we're talking about, like, a threat to democratic decision making but also your ability to like maintain public services for an entire country so it's it's so extreme so you know it's it's great that pope francis said what he said but 
we need like really serious solidarity with countries that are facing these cases and and we need more specifics. I, I agree with what he's saying and it, it's really important to attack the narrative that decolonization happened because it didn't. It, uh, it was replaced with a different system and it got a whole new terminology. But after the Second World War, um, the US and UK, who primarily built this system, they came up with a whole new vocabulary to c- cover um, the, what they were, the, this new system. And, and the, the, the word they use is development. It was all about, we want to develop the rest of the world. Uh, and even the word development itself now is used to describe, it sounds very innocent, but what it describes is the economic policies that are pushed on the rest of the world that, that basically decide how the majority of humanity run their economy. So it's important stuff. But development is, these these institutions don't care about the development of the poor world. It's not a coincidence, the massive levels of inequality. It's the result of these institutions, not despite them. Um, so... Uh, it's a massive PR operation and, and this new system works in the shadows, but effectively just enshrines, uh, as I mentioned, uh, foreign investor power and corporations uh, in a much more insidious way. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Well, uh, the overall system is interesting in the abstract, but your book is also full of these extremely concrete specifics about how this plays out in various countries. And uh, I wonder what you think are the most startling stories that you tell in the book. For me, one of the ones is South Africa. South Africa, after the end of apartheid, which was like, oh, if you see a, a global news story that involved also like a lot of global attention and pushing for the end of apartheid. After that moment, a huge range of new laws get revised and passed to try to move the country on from apartheid and also redress issues from the past. Among those are a new mining charter, which changes the rules of the game for the mining industry. Um, and in particular requires mining companies to hand over a certain small minority percentage of their power to people who had been historically disadvantaged under apartheid. After that act gets passed, a group of European investors sued South Africa, saying that they were not allowed to redress historical injustices under international investment law. 
And that case did not finish because it, it settled before a conclusion in, in, the, in, the, in the actual case. And in the settlement, South Africa conceded and gave those investors a more favorable treatment than they would have received under the new law. So they had to hand over a much smaller percentage of their power to historically disadvantaged individuals. So this surprised me on a number of different levels, like on the level of like how the investor state dispute settlement system can come in conflict with other things that we kind of globally agree are important, like universal human rights and, you know, not having racially based systems of discrimination and, and, and also how it like showed how like our industry, the media hasn't been really fulfilling its function and explaining to people how how decisions are really made and who really holds power. Yeah, I mean, the South Africa case was crazy. Um, it was an amazing experience going there because it wasn't like El Salvador. Basically, the whole book started in El Salvador because there was a case that was bought by a Canadian mining company for $300 million uh, against the El Salvadoran government for not granting them an environmental permit for a month to, to dig for gold. And when we went to El Salvador, the whole, it was ins- amazing, the whole of the society basically knew about ICSID, w- which I mentioned, which is known as CIADI w- by its Spanish acronym. So you'd speak to n- normal people on the street and they'd understand it, they'd see it, they knew it was in a massive attack on their sovereignty. And But then in South Africa where we went, barely anyone knew about it. And that was because... The South African government didn't want to publicize it because they didn't want to incentivize other companies uh, suing them for their black empowerment policies. And we went, I also went to India to to look at the first Asian special economic zone in Gandhi Dam. But they're also coming back to the Western world. And this is a whole trend that we look at in the book and we called it the boomerang effect that a lot of these systems and models which were created to enshrine corporate power and Western domination in the developing world are now coming back to eat the states that created them. So we went to Germany and to Hamburg where they, they were, Germany was being sued for billions by a Swedish energy company for decommissioning its nuclear power. And Germany, as I said, was kind of the, God, the, the godfather of all well, this bank was the godfather of this whole system. And many people in Germany were saying, oh, we, we, we knew this system existed, but we never thought it would hit us. And on the SEZ model, where I live in London, the government here announced two years ago that we're going to have 13 free ports now, Freeports is a is another name for a special economic zone. So it's just a corporate utopia within Britain that ha- they can do what they want, and that's and that's what we've got. Nothing left in Britain after Thatcherism. Now they're just selling off land itself. So, like, I grew up in North America. I grew up in the U.S. and Canada, sort of half and half. And part of like when I think about what we looked at in our book and what it shows, and particularly when I try to talk to North American audiences about it. I also explain it as like, like we are really living in also the world that NAFTA created. Like all of the concerns that we had had when NAFTA was proposed about the shifting to corporate power, about environment, health, workers being disempowered, like all of that has happened. Um, but also an important, like uh, an important, like related point is also like the power of also even like local entrepreneurs and small businesses have dis- has has decreased. The only companies that can file suits at the international investor state dispute settlement system are multinational companies and investors. Like you cannot file a case like this if you are a small entrepreneur and you have a problem with your government. If you have a problem with your government, you go through local courts. 
if you're an international investor or an international company, you have a second option. You can go to this international system. So it's completely also changed the game. And, and like the interests of like local entrepreneurs and small businesses like really don't align with these multinational corporations that have this access to these international systems that, that serve them, not the mom and pop shops. Well, I, just to add as well that the system, the ISDS system, Investor State Dispute Settlement, where corporations can sue states, it's a complete violation of how they tell us capitalism works, which is that you take a risk and the higher the risk, the bigger potential reward, but you have to evaluate whether that risk is worth it, right? So if you go to the Congo and you're a mining company, you might get your asset expropriated by the government or you might get, um, I don't know, <laughs> attacked by paramilitaries, whatever it is, or there might be a new government that comes in and a military dictatorship takes over. But, but, but you've taken that risk because you're in the Congo, you know about it. But this de-risks the whole thing because you have access to a uh, an international venue wh where you can uh, pay for powerful corporate lawyers to, to back you up and take these countries to, to those courts and they, have to, and they have to go. Because the other thing is no, no one's ever done a no-show because there's a very powerful enforcement mechanism that exists for, for any country which kind of uh, says, well, we're not, we don't want to, we don't want to show up because uh, Claire mentioned the Honduras case; they're being sued for eleven billion dollars for for trying to shut down a special economic zone on Roatan, one of the Honduran islands, and they don't know what to do. They don't know what that they they know you ca they can't afford it. It's a it's a it's an absolute crisis for them. But but I don't I don't think they're considering not showing up because. You can't. If you don't, if you do that, you're, you're instantly your credit lines from the Bretton Woods institutions will be slashed. There's a there's a thing called the the New York Convention on Arbitral Disputes, which means which everyone's kind of signed up to, and that means that any country has to expropriate your your any assets you own. So if even like a presidential jet, if it landed in a certain country, they'd have to take it if you if you don't pay up or you don't attend these hearings. It's a system that is is extremely powerful and extremely difficult to ignore. And extremely difficult to get out of. Okay, so we've we've talked about El Salvador and South Africa. South Africa, of course, being an especially stark example. Uh, but one example that you also have in your book that is possibly even more startling and is particularly timely right now is the section called Occupation Incorporated in Palestine. And I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I went to... Um... Palestine. That was in 2016. And I wanted to work on the role that the pri privatization of the occupation was having on Palestinians. And I realized quite quickly that it was uh, the privatization of the occupation that was happening, ra happening rapidly. So for example, we'd go to checkpoints and the checkpoints wouldn't be manned by the IDF. They'd be manned the Israel Defense Forces or so-called Defense Forces. They'd be manned by private contractors. There was one called Modine Ezrachi. And these people had had killed people. And what 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 the subcontracting out of security in Palestine by Israel allowed them complete impunity. I mean, the IDF has near complete impunity anyway, but there are formal mechanisms that there are for redress for Palestinians who have been killed. It, with the private contractors, there's there's no accountability because they're private companies. Yeah, and, and you see that across the world, that the privatization of the military and security is a, very, is a boon for states because it allows them 
plausible deniability whenever when anything goes wrong. But again, it's a story that isn't really covered that well. But it also is a way for the Israelis to the, the, the private sector to make a lot of money. And a, another story I did in Palestine, which was really uh, heartbreaking, really, is how the Israelis use the West Bank and, and Gaza as well. But I actually wasn't allowed into Gaza. But in the West Bank uh, and Gaza, they use as w- what people now call a laboratory. And a very good journalist called Anthony Lowenstein has just written a book called The Palestine Laboratory. And it's about how having this captive population in the West Bank and Gaza has allowed the uh, private security, uh, arms industry, surveillance industry, all these industries that the Israelis are kind of leading in, is because they have this captive population where they can test all this stuff out. And in a, in, a, in a world that's becoming more and more securitized, Israel's kind of like the place that everyone looks at. And I went to Ramallah and talked to the head of the, uh, the resistance committee in Bilayin, which is a town which was being cut in half effectively by the annexation wall that uh, Israel was, was still building then. It's, I think it's finished now, but it, which has been ruled illegal by the UN. But he was saying, yeah, well, we, we saw all this stuff uh, being, being thrown at us. At, at, it was nonviolent demonstrations. I went on one. And when I went to the demonstration in Bilayin, they shot live ammunition at us. And no, there was not. It was all non-violent. But anyway, he was saying that they, that this sort of a skunk gas, I think it is, which is just putrid smelling gas, was was pioneered in Bilain. That's what he told me. And then I went to another investigator, a Palestinian human rights investigator, and I went into his house, which was around the back of Ramallah um, Hospital. And I'll never forget. Like I walked in, and there was just a table with all this all this spent ammunition and different uh, weapons, because he was investigating what would happen. He, he was just showing me all this newfangled weaponry, which he had been built up over the years. And he said, they try it out on us. And he said that uh, in all the years that he's been investigating them, they've never, there's never been any, uh, they've, got, they've had complete impunity. And he said that's got worse the, with the uh, prevalence of private security and, and private military within the Israeli establishment, because he said often you'd see uniforms and not even know who they belong to. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, Israel is the center of the export of surveillance technology of newfangled arms and all sorts of all sorts of stuff and it's because they got a captive population and I mean I don't need to uh, I don't need to talk about the morality of using an imprisoned population of 2 million people as a kind of lab to try out your newfangled weaponry so you can sell it to market and actually they do use in their brochures they use the term battle proven and sometimes even mention the war that it was used in. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's really, it was a real sickening experience. Again, this is a fascinating book. It is called The Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Uh, really, anybody, if you want to understand how the world truly works, you should get this and read it. And before we wrap up, I was hoping that the two of you could talk just a little bit about the person that Silent Coup is dedicated to, uh, Gavin McFadden. Yeah, well, Gavin was an amazing man. He died in 2016 um, towards the end of our fellowship at the Center for Investigative Journalism, which is where all this research started. And he he, he had this uh, ability to be wherever history was being made. So he was in Nicaragua uh, during a Sandinista revolution. Um, he was banned from apartheid South Africa, he was banned from the Soviet Union. He made about 40 different documentaries for national TV in the UK. When when you could actually get good journalism on the TV, you can't do that anymore. 
but he was he was an American guy, and he uh, interestingly uh, uh, he was the political mentor to Bernie Sanders in Chicago in the sixties. So he politicized Bernie Sanders, which I didn't know about until after he died. And then he later became the mentor and very close to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Yeah, so he, I mean, he, he and he was a, a kind of unique figure in the sense that he ran a CIJ in a very um, free way. It was totally different to the institutions that. I'd been in, uh, I was at the Financial Times before and the journalism that I was allowed to practice was extremely corporate, essentially. It was, uh, there was only certain things you could say. And Gavin, when we started there in 2014, he said to us, look, you've got two years to do whatever you want. You got a wage. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to live on, definitely. And you've got a travel budget as well. I don't, I don't think we'll, uh, many people ever get that opportunity and we, we probably won't again. But that was a testament to Gavin that he just believed that You've got to give people freedom to to look for for the stories that they want and also the the backing to be brave as well because I knew that whatever we did, as long as it was truthful, fact based, um, he would back us. And the other, I mean, the other thing about him, which was which everyone who knew him says, is he was just an amazingly warm person uh, and funny, and uh, it, it was quite interesting because a lot of, a lot of people like that that have seen so much human suffering and been witness to it it hardens them in some ways or at least it it, it it makes them I don't know a bit withdrawn whereas he was the opposite he was he would light up any gathering he was happy to work in the shadows doing his journalism and uh doing his activism because he was an activist as well he used to go he wanted he he was really into this idea of direct action journalism like he he wanted to he was saying we should go and chain ourselves outside the Department of State until they gave us a certain bit of information, um, which I'd never heard of before. And I haven't seen done, but it's quite, I quite like that idea. And he was also extremely democratic. Gavin, our mentor, also like mentored and influenced like many investigative journalists. I keep running into them, people who, who uh, really like understand like what it means to be a journalist also because of Gavin. And that understanding means that you're also not afraid of trouble. And, and that's a core understand. That's a core part of it. I think like in professional journalism, you can be trained to avoid trouble. And, and Gavin almost did the opposite. And, and, and the, that's where the dedication good trouble also comes from. So you've heard about the man that they dedicated this book to, that he was very good at getting into trouble. He was very good at causing trouble. I would say if you read this book, you too are going to cause some trouble probably. You definitely will be in trouble if people have found out that you've read it. It is fantastic. I really recommend it to everyone. Uh, Claire and Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Cause some trouble, please. <laughs> That was Claire Provost and Matt Kennard, and that's our show. Their new book is Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show is mixed by William Stanton. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm John Schwartz. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. Finally, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear each new episode. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. 
If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcastsattheintercept.com. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.